Well, good morning. Please do keep that passage uh, open, page 1020, Mark's Gospel, and we'll be focusing particularly on verses 22 to 26. Shall we pray? Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for uh, your word. Thank you that it cuts uh, to the heart, cuts to the bone uh, like a double-edged sword. Please would you speak to us this morning by your spirit uh, through these words, through the Bible, that you may uh, change us to have us be the people uh, you want us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, actions speak louder than words. That's an old maxim, isn't it, often uh, said. And there can't really, I think, be a more powerful example of that than what we've got uh, in front of us in this um, passage uh, this morning. This is the moment when Jesus explains uh, in words and symbolic actions what uh, he has come to do. He combines these words and actions, if you like, to screw down into our hearts, into our minds, the truth, the deepest truth that every person needs to know. The meaning and the life-transforming power of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. You know, in this passage, we're one day from Jesus' death. This is the, the passion part of Mark's Gospel. A warrant is effectively out for his arrest. But do you see how Jesus is in complete control of all that is happening Everything is planned. When the disciples asked uh, where they should prepare the Passover, verse 12, Jesus answers, doesn't he, with specific instructions, verses 13 to 15. There's a man to follow, a house to enter, a room furnished, ready for the meal. And sure enough, the disciples find everything just as Jesus told them, verse 16. It is all according to plan. Even the painful betrayal by Jesus of a close friend, that is not a surprise to him. Jesus predicts the betrayal in verse 18, doesn't he? One of you will betray me. And he explains how his death fulfills what has been written about him in the scriptures hundreds of years before. You know, if this was a film, we would say, wouldn't we, Jesus has written the script, he's directing the play, and he is the main actor. Jesus did not die as an accident or a victim uh, of events. He died according to a plan and for a purpose. So so what do these events tell us, uh, these familiar events to many of us? What do they say about the death of Jesus? There are just three points that I want to draw out uh, this morning. That is the importance of his death, the meaning of his death, and the life-transforming power of his death. Importance, meaning, and power. So first, let's, let's look at the importance of his death. It's interesting, isn't it? Jesus chose the night of the Passover uh, to explain his death, and in doing so, he doesn't get up and give a lecture. He presides over a meal. So to understand the death of Jesus, we've got to understand the Passover. There's a link here, isn't there? Uh, what is the Passover? Well, every year, the Jewish people, they got together to commemorate uh, the Passover. Families would gather for a meal to commemorate the defining moment in the history uh, of the nation of Israel. The Israelites, they'd been unjustly enslaved in Egypt and bondage under Pharaoh, and God had rescued them uh, as he came in judgment uh, on the Egyptians. He led them into freedom. You can read that in Exodus 11 to 13. It was not that the Israelites did not deserve to be judged. They'd also rebelled against God. It wasn't a case of the good guys and the bad guys. The Bible tells us that that the line between good and evil, it runs through the middle of every person's heart. 
Every human is sinful and self-centered. So every person would be subject to God's justice. It was to come down and all. No one would survive. But in his mercy, what did God do? He provided a rescue for the Israelites. The only way to survive was to kill a lamb, to eat it that night, and to daub the blood on the doorpost of the house. So when justice came down, there was hope only for those who'd taken shelter under the lamb. The only way to be saved was to have faith in a substitute. And so that night, in every Israelite house, a lamb died instead of a firstborn son. That was what the Passover meal commemorated. The defining moment, the moment of deliverance uh, for Israel. And during the Passover meal, the host or the presider of the meal would, would bless the elements of the meal. They, they'd get up and do so by explaining the different symbolic elements uh, of the meal, how, how they illustrated different aspects of the captivity uh, and the uh, moments of deliverance, the, the bread, the herbs, the lamb. And there was always a standard formula of words uh, that was used. So you can imagine, can't you, the complete astonishment when Jesus stands up as a presider of this Passover meal to explain the symbolism, but he changes the script completely. He, t- he starts to talk about something completely different. Just look at verse 22. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it, this is my body. The disciples would have expected Jesus to take the bread and say, This is the bread of affliction that our forefathers ate in the wilderness. But what does he say? Take it, take, eat, this is my body. What is Jesus saying? He's saying this, this is the bread of my affliction. This is my suffering. Jesus is portraying here his own death. He broke bread as his body would be broken on the cross. He gave the bread as his body would be given for them on the cross. The same point is made when Jesus takes the cup of wine in verse 25. This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. It is a picture of what Jesus will do on the cross. Jesus is saying, I am going to lead the ultimate exodus. I'm going to bring you ultimate deliverance, just as the original Passover meal was eaten the night before God redeemed the nation of Israel from slavery in Egypt. So this meal, this is eaten the night before God will redeem from sin and death. Jesus is saying, I am the ultimate Moses, the ultimate, leading the ultimate exodus, leading the ultimate salvation through ultimate suffering. All of the other deliverances, all the other sacrifices, they point to me, says Jesus. This is, this is the climactic event to which the history of the world have been moving. It is the most important event in history. It remains so today. So what is the meaning of the death of Jesus? One of the really interesting things about the accounts of the Passover is that the roast lamb, the best bit, you'd think, 
never gets a mention. The bread features the wine, but not the lamb. But it's the main course. Why doesn't the lamb feature? Well, there's no lamb on the table, is there? Because the lamb of God is sitting at the table. Jesus is the main course. That is why John the Baptist, when he first saw Jesus, declared, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Why did John the Baptist call Jesus a lamb? Because Isaiah the prophet had done. You can read in Isaiah chapter 53, as a great prophet predicts the coming of the suffering servant. Isaiah knew that in the end, only a person could substitute for the death of another person. So what does Isaiah say? He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. He poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors, for he bore the sin of many. The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. So when Jesus took the cup, And declared in verse 24, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. He is saying, I am that suffering servant. I am the one the prophets spoke about. I am the Lamb of God, the one to whom all those other lambs, from that moment of deliverance, pointed. This is the meaning of the death of Jesus. It is substitutionary sacrifice substitutionary, sacrificial love, which, without which we cannot be saved. I think this is one of those things that actually today, if we're honest, we all really struggle with. It was Bernard Shaw who said, I like Christianity, but I hate Christianity. I wonder whether we agree with that to some extent. Why, why the heck do we need a sacrifice? It just seems so medieval. It's just gory. Why is it necessary? Why can't God just decide to love us? Isn't the cross just some form of sick blood appeasement? The answer, surely, is this. Isn't all love, in the end, all real life-changing love, isn't it about substitutionary sacrifice? It's not possible, is it, to love a person who is broken, or who's in trouble, or, or who's guilty, except through some type of substitutionary sacrifice. So I think we know that. Loving a nice person, well, that's easy. The person's sorted. They don't need changing. It costs nothing. But if you try to love someone who has needs, who's, who's damaged in some way, it's going to cost you. Some kind of transfer between you happens. It's, it's them or you. It is a classic plot, isn't it, of so many films. If you think about films, you often have, in thrillers, you have a good person in a film, a person who's done nothing wrong, whose life is safe and secure. They meet somebody who's in a bad situation, pursued by an evil corporation, pursued by a hitman. You know the kind of plot. And the good person, they get drawn in to help. And the moment they do that, the moment they associate with the person in trouble, their safety is gone. The good person enters danger. They too become pursued. Yet if they hadn't got involved, well, very often the other person 
would never have survived. The only way the other person can enter safety is if the good person enters danger. Them or you. Substitutionary sacrifice. Just think about a person who is, who is in a tough place emotionally, who is struggling. They need to be loved, but they're hard work. You see them coming towards you after church. Oh no, how much time am I going to have to give this person today? It's going to be hard work. I'm going to have to give a lot in conversation. And yet the only way that sort of person will be helped, surely, is if someone loves them. And yet somehow the person who gives that love, they're they're going to be drained to some extent. Is there more you? All real love is substitutionary sacrifice. Or just think about your school days, if you can bear it. I mean, at school, you always have, don't you? You have a cool crowd of people at school. You have kind of the middle crowd, which is kind of the mainstream. And then you have a few weird people uh, on the edge. I went to a boarding school, so it's probably particularly bad. But there, there was a group of people at my school that were labelled so bad, you couldn't go near them. If you went near them, it just wasn't socially acceptable to speak to them. If you did so, you too were a social outcast. Somehow their lack of social credibility, it would rub off on you. But there was no way to end the alienation or the isolation of a weird person. But to kind of enter into some of that by spending time with them. But that impacted you. It's them or you. All real love. It's substitutionary sacrifice. Someone's condition comes onto you. And it's the only way that you can help them. You may have heard this story before. It's very well known. There was a great fire uh, at a farm. It swept through all the barns. It destroyed everything in sight. The next day, the farmer went into a smouldering shell of a barn. And to his astonishment, he saw sat rigid and upright the charred body of a hen. He kind of poked it with a stick, pushed to one side... And out from under it emerged three chicks alive. When the blaze arrived, the mother stayed put. She was willing to die so those under the cover of her wing would live. What does Jesus say in Luke 13? O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, How I've longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wing. God is not a bloodthirsty God, as many would say. The cross is not a bloodthirsty act. It is God coming himself to love us. It is an act of substitutionary, sacrificial love. On the cross, Jesus took the penalty upon himself. He got what we deserve. Our sin fell on him. Our guilt fell on him. Our brokenness fell on him. He took it on himself so we could be forgiven. And he was burnt to a crisp for it. That is why Jesus came. The only way evil is overcome is if someone sacrifices for another. 
Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Well, the importance of the meaning. Finally, what is the life-transforming power of the death of Jesus? Just think about a meal if you're hungry. Someone cooks you a meal, puts it in front of you. You've got to eat it, haven't you? If you're starving hungry and there's loads of food around, you're going to die of starvation unless you eat the food. Do you see that as a point that Jesus makes in verse 22? Jesus broke bread, gave it to his disciples and says, what? Take it. This is my body. Take it. This is my body. Jesus is saying, I'm going to die for you, but you have to accept what I'm doing for you. The legal word would be you need to appropriate it. You've got to accept it from me. To receive the benefits of Christ's death, we have to depend on him. We've got to trust him. Maybe we're thinking, well, you know what, in the end, it'll be okay. I'll I'll get home. It'll be all right. I, I don't need rescuing. Yes, you do, says Jesus. We will all stand before God in judgment. And it will be Jesus' body broken, his blood poured out. Only that that can mean we can be accepted. On the cross, Jesus paid a debt he did not owe to satisfy a debt none of us could pay. But we've got to personally accept it. We've got to depend on him. And do you see, there's no question that we can depend on Jesus. He is rock solid. Do you see that in verse 23? Look at verse 23. Then he took the cup, gave thanks, and offered it to them. And they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. What's going on here is that Jesus, yes, he's replaced the old sacrificial system, but he's doing more than that. He is also re-establishing the underlying covenant, the promise, with Israel on a new basis. God has made a co- God made a covenant at Sinai with Moses, given the Ten Commandments, and it was sealed with blood. Blood was sprinkled. The blood of sacrificial animals was sprinkled. Uh, over the people. This is the blood of the covenant the Lord has made for you, were the words. Now what do we see at the Lord's Supper? We see Jesus deliberately echo those words. Israel, she'd forgotten the covenant. She continued uh, to rebel. But prophets like Jeremiah, they'd promised a new covenant which would be based on the forgiveness of God, where God's law would be written on people's hearts. And here... The eve of Jesus' death, he institutes that new covenant. It is the beginning of a new relationship between God and his people. And he, and he seals it not with the blood of an animal, but with his own blood. The new covenant is sealed and guaranteed by the blood of Christ poured out on the cross. So it is an unbreakable covenant. Jesus is saying, you know, your salvation does not depend on your commitment to me. It depends on my commitment to you. And that commitment, it is rock solid. I'm unconditionally committed to you, to to getting you home. I wonder, do we believe that? Do you believe that? I think the truth is you don't believe that. None of us believe that. 
at least not to the deepest extent that we can. We just don't grasp it. We tend to think, you know, if I do more for God, if I bring up my kids so they become Christians, if I manage to squeeze in that 20-minute quiet time, that is going to make things better. It will sort things out with God. No, it won't. And if things go bad or wrong, we think, I'm not committed enough. I've failed again. Is God going to continue to put up with me? Yes, he is. We need to grasp, don't we, the depth of the life-transforming power of the death of Jesus. The good news of Jesus Christ depends on his perfect commitment to you, not your imperfect commitment to him. You've probably heard this illustration before, very familiar, but it's good. You're at the top of a steep cliff. You fall off the cliff. As you start to fall, you see a thin splinter of rock sticking out of the cliff face. You've got just enough time to grab it. You've got no idea whether it's going to be strong enough to hold you. How much faith do you have to have that it will hold you? How much faith do you have to have that it will hold you? Just enough, surely, to grab the splinter. Why? Because it is not, it's not the quality of our faith that saves us. It is the object. It's the object of our faith. And Jesus, he is the object. He is that splinter of rock. Salvation depends not on our past, but on Christ's past. It depends not on on our record, but on Christ's record. We contribute nothing, nothing to the work of the cross, apart from our own sin and our failure. It is all God. Just as we finish, do you see those wonderful words of Jesus in verse 26? I'll tell you the truth, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. Aren't those amazing words? Jesus died in order to sit down to a banquet with us. It is astonishing but true. What an amazing thought. We can look to the future, can't we, with confidence. If we trust in Jesus' death, we will eat and drink together with him in the kingdom of God. What a thing to anticipate uh, in the future. No matter how difficult or challenging life is, there is certainty of a glorious future for those who trust in Jesus. He is committed to getting us home, to that wedding feast uh, of the Lamb. And the greatest longings of our hearts, they will be satisfied. They will be met on that day when we sit down to that meal uh, with Jesus. On the cross, Jesus gave his body. He shed his blood. He fulfilled the covenant. History, it was transformed. The door of heaven, it was flung wide open. Our lives, your life, my life, they can be transformed for all eternity. What an amazing thing that is. Amen.